Morning, church. Good to see all of you. Um, I really was enjoying the uh, Farkas Brown Band, right? It was pretty cool. I'm trying to get Eli to do. He hasn't taken me up on that, but when he does, it's going to happen. It's all right. There'll be a reward for you. promise. Anyway, uh, you know what? You guys are the hardcore. It's cold outside, and yet here you are. Yes, proud of you. So proud of you. Uh, anyway, we're in this uh, series called Reveal, <clears throat> and um, kind of what I wanted to talk a little bit about is um, we started this at, a, at Epiphany, which is um, the 12 days after Christmas, and uh, in the Western Church, um, Epiphany is associated with the wise men. So Jesus is revealed, the Epiphany, Jesus is revealed to um, the rest of the world, specifically Gentiles, and that's kind of where this idea of the wise men came. Of course, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, however, it's slightly different in that uh, Epiphany is related to Jesus' baptism when the heavens part and the dove comes down and it it is revealed that Jesus is God's Son. So you you can see the difference between the two churches here. But, But ultimately what we're after, what we're trying to do in this series is understand how God reveals himself to us. Because we are humans and we have finite brains, some of us a little more finite than others, Let's be honest. But when we have these finite brains, the infinite has to come down and reveal himself to us. Does that make sense? And so we're trying to explore places in the, in the scripture um, that show us how God reveals himself. Now, of course, we, we here in the 21st century will first turn to the scriptures because people back then didn't necessarily have the scriptures as we understand them. They had, of course, the Old Testament, but they didn't have the New Testament. And so we will often open the Bible, and that's where God primarily reveals himself to us. But it's not the only place. And sometimes when you crack open the Bible, let's be honest, all of us need a little bit of help, don't we? Because I think we can read it and not fully understand it. And so sometimes God has to come down and tap you on the shoulder just to remind you. Is that, am I the only one who feels that way? Because, yeah, you in church don't lie. So I know how this goes. So we're trying to explore this. And, and of course, we looked at the, um, uh, the wise men. We looked at baptism, baptism, can't talk today, baptism of Jesus. Um, today I want to pick up uh, another story. And the next week, Pastor James is going to give us a fourth one. So we've got two more that we're going to look at. Um, James is going to be here next week because I'm going to be preaching at one of our sister churches. I get the privilege to do that from time to time. And um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say uh, about all of, of his understanding of how God reveals himself. So... <clears throat> I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today, John chapter 4. It's a familiar passage. In fact, I was thinking about this, and I'm fairly certain that I've used this passage within the last year or so uh, to make another point. But I want to go through um, John chapter 4. It's the classic woman at the well, where Jesus talks to the woman at the well. And I want to show you something, a couple of things in this passage, and then I'm going to offer a thought on it. So that's kind of where we're going. Let's just take a second. Let's pause. I want to pray because I'm looking around and I'm thinking, we've got a lot of people who are out sick. <laughs> Have you noticed this? And then I was talking to somebody earlier, and I was like, this, this is the time of year where we're between 45 and 50 55 degrees, which is like the sick sick disease, right? I mean, because it's not warm enough, and it's not cold enough, and so everybody's going to get sick. So we're just going to pray for our brothers and sisters who aren't here. 
God, thank you so much for the day, the fact that you are here with us. We're gathered in your name, and so we know by your word that you are here too, and we're grateful that you're here. But we also are looking around, and we know that some of our brothers and sisters are missing because they're sick, and it's that time of year. And so we pray, Lord, first for, for health and healing and relief for those who are really wrestling with colds and flus and, and that sort of thing. And Lord, I pray for everybody here that you would protect us, keep us healthy and safe going into the next few weeks and the next few months. And Lord, I pray that as a church that we would um, feel your presence today, empower us um, to free us, to help us be the kind of people you want us to be. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Okay, so uh, John chapter 4, I'm going to take this in chunks. Let me see if I can kind of set the stage. In John's biography of Jesus, and at this point, Jesus is traveling from the southern part of Israel back to his home in the northern part of Israel. And in order to do that, he has to go through a, a part of the country called Samaria. Now, Samaritans and Jews do not get along, which might be the understatement of history. They kind of sort of hate each other. Not kind of sort of, they do. They hate each other. And so very often, um, Jews would go out of their way to not go through Samaria. And yet here Jesus is going through it, which should tell us a little bit about Jesus. He's not afraid to do things that other people are. And so he's traveling through, and, and he's going with his disciples, and at some point they get hungry, as young men often do. Because remember, the vast majority of G Jesus' disciples are essentially teenagers. The youngest could be as young as 13. The oldest is probably 20 or 21. Okay? So we've got a group of young men who are traveling Jesus around, and they get hungry. How many of you have teenage boys? And so they stop at a particular city in Samaria, a little village in, in Samaria. And Jesus sends his disciples on to go buy food in the village. And he sits down at a very famous well. It's called Jacob's Well. And it's in this land of Samaria, and he's sitting there. And a woman call, comes up to draw water. Now, this is happening in the middle of the day, which, please keep in mind, would be very unusual for a woman to draw water from a well midday because it's hot. You would typically go in the morning or the evening when it wasn't so hot and wasn't so laborious. So here we're going to pick up the story of what happens next. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone in, into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now let's, let's pause here for a moment. Because not only do we have this hatred between um, Jews and Samaritans, you have to put this in cultural context. This is a single man and a woman having a conversation unchaperoned. There are certain customs that are going on here that would make this a very scandalous exchange. Regardless of anything happens or not, the fact that they're even having the conversation unchaperoned is a big deal, and we must understand what's at stake here culturally. Okay? On top of it, 
Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. That sets him at a whole different level of scandal. Does this make sense? And so here he is having this conversation and asks her for a drink. That's a dangerous thing, and she's kind of taken aback and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. doesn't know he's a rabbi at this point. How can you ask me for a drink? Meaning, you know, you're, 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 you're treading on some thin ice here. Not that they had ice in the desert, but you understand what I mean, right? The whole point is, is that this is a dangerous thing for you to do. Why are, why are you doing this? And he answers her with a very spiritual sort of answer. If, if you only knew really who it is that you're talking to, you would be asking me for something. And this is really interesting to me. The thought just occurs to me how often Jesus confronts each one of us with that same question. If we only knew who it was that we were speaking to, we would be asking him for living water. Interesting thought. So he makes this cryptic sort of statement, and she goes on, and she says, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Well, this is kind of funny, because, you know, he went all kind of cryptic on her, and she gets real practical. <laughs> you don't have a bucket. For me, the image is one of those big orange Homer buckets. I'm sorry, that's what I'm thinking of. I know it didn't exist back then, but you know, you, you know, a bucket. How are you going to do this? So she gets kind of practical here, and but but she's interested in what he says and talks about this idea of the living water. And so you don't have a bucket, so it's deep. How are you going to draw this living water out? And then Jesus answered, "Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst." Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, there's an interplay here that is very rabbinic. Sometimes I think we forget the fact that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi and there is rabbinic Judaism at play here. And sometimes when you hear or when you read rabbis talking to other people, they, they wrap um, certain spiritual truths in real things. Sometimes they speak in parables. Very often they ask questions. And they usually answer questions with other questions. It's a very interesting way that they, they talk with one another. But here, in this particular passage, what we see is Jesus talking about spiritual things, but he's using very practical types of metaphors. It's not parable, but it's a conversation that they're having. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty. In other words, in other words you're kind of missing the point. I understand what you're saying. You're right, I don't have a bucket, but I don't really need a bucket, <laughs> right? Because whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst, indeed the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life, meaning this, what I'm giving you, will actually take residence there and it will begin to produce on its own. It's a really beautiful way of bridging from the physical to the spiritual, I think. And notice what she says. And I love this. Sir, give me this water so that I won't 
get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now remember, because this is going to become very important in just a little bit, she's there midday. That's unusual. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is why? Why was the woman there midday drawing water when that was unusual? And why is she so eager to have this source of water so she doesn't have to keep coming to the well at midday? Some questions are beginning to surface, and we need to pay attention to these because, again, the culture is at play. Just remember, every time we open the scriptures, we are tourists. There are different cultures, there's a different time frame, and we don't necessarily understand those, and sometimes we have to do a little bit of digging in order for all of this to have some meaning to us. So look what she says next, what Jesus says next. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Now, we want to read ahead. Okay, We, we really want to do this. But I want you to think very pragmatically. Remember, this is a scandalous exchange. And in some ways, I think Jesus is attempting to protect her. Hey, go call your husband. If we're going to have this conversation, go call your husband. And what does she say? I have no husband. And he goes on and he says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, we have no idea how Jesus knows this, whether this is by divine inspiration or something that he observed. The text does not tell us. You cannot make an argument from silence. But he makes the statement to her. And I think this is a really important thing. He's attempting to protect her here. But he's also putting his finger on the crux of the problem. Why is she there midday? My guess is that she's got a reputation. And that she can't show up when everyone else does. Because we have, we have this history, this past. My guess is that like I said, we're not making an argument from silence here, but my guess is that Jesus made some observations and probably had some divine insight into all of this. And in the middle of the exchange, he asks her a simple question. She gives him a simple answer, and he immediately knows what's going on. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Yeah, you think? <laughs> right? Wow. And now she turns the conversation spiritual herself. Notice what she says. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is the crux of the problem between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans believed that there was one, uh, there was actually a couple of different mountains that you could worship on, and Jews said, no, no, you could only worship in, in Jerusalem. And they, they would not see eye to eye on this one at all. <clears throat> Woman, Jesus replied, which by the way is not a derogatory term. It was something that you would say when you didn't know the person's name, and it was very respectful that he said this. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's a Jewish rabbi, remember? He, he gets this. Yet, a time is coming. 
and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. In other words, it doesn't matter where you worship. The point is that you worship. And you worship in the full knowledge of, of who God is and where you are in relationship to Him. That's the truth, right? And of course, Jesus is the revelation of that truth. We're going to see that here in just a moment. But the point is here is it doesn't matter where. It matters that you worship. And we're fighting over junk that doesn't matter. What matters is that we worship in spirit and truth. Jesus not only takes her spiritual answer, he drives to the heart of the matter. He says, this is what separates Jews and Samaritans, but really it's what separates all of us at some level. I think it's profound what Jesus says here. In fact, we'd probably spend a couple hours just trying to tease out what that might mean. And I think it's an important, important point. And I, but I, I find this really funny because... It talks about her husband, and then she switches the subject to religion. Isn't that great? It's like, if we're going to talk about controversial subjects, let's bring this up. But Jesus, Jesus comes back around, and he, he really gets to the heart of the matter. But notice what her comment is. I love this. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now remember, she's from a completely different religion, and yet they've heard of the Messiah too. And she, and she just kind of says, you know what, okay, you, you clearly know a little bit more than I do, but I know that the one who's called the Messiah, when he comes, it'll, it'll all be made clear. And you can almost hear this longing in her heart for there to be some clarity around that. It's, this, it's a beautiful moment where she, she is is a woman most likely with a reputation, with a history for sure, and yet she too is longing to understand really what this is all about. And notice Jesus' reply. love this. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's kind of like um, she says, well, when the Messiah comes, he's going to explain it. And Jesus, Jesus replies, I just did. Nicole, this is one of those exchanges where you can kind of get lost in some of the details, but there's this beautiful picture of a conversation that talks about metaphor, that talks about personal, that talks about religion, but ultimately comes down to the person of Jesus. And so sometimes we have to understand that Jesus or God will reveal himself directly where God comes down and says, yep, me, right here. A lot of you have heard me tell this story before, but um, uh, as you know, we have two daughters. Um, Elizabeth is 18 and Eliana is 8, and people say, we got 10 years between the two of them. Well, Eliana's name means God has answered my prayer. So you can do the math. And there are, is this story um, that we have uh, about Eliana's um, birth and its not just one miracle, but a series of miracles where we felt like God was saying all along, mm -mm, I got this. This is something that I'm going to do. And there have been moments in my life where I have questioned my faith. 
I'm just going to be honest about that. I'm like, I don't, I don't understand this. I don't know what you're calling me to do. It's not that I ever doubted God, but I doubted my ability to understand him. And those moments when I was quite willing to go, that's it, I've had enough. I see this little girl running around my house. And it reminds me, again, that God has answered my prayer. And I can't just explain that one away. I can't do it. She's that living embodiment. Both my children have been very catalytic in my own life. But, but that was the one where there was such a series and there was such a clear sense that this is something that God was going to do, that we all kind of experienced it. And God revealed himself directly in those moments. And it was weird and it was wonderful at the same time. But it's uncommon. You know, it doesn't happen all the time. And when it does happen, you hang on to it. Faith builders. God reveals himself directly. And usually it's in, through Jesus, by the way. Frankly, I wish it happened a little more often. <laughs> hmm. If we want to understand the heart of God, it's Jesus and how he behaved. If we want to honor God, follow Jesus, what he did, imitate him, learn his teachings, live them out. If we want to behave as God wants, then really look at what Jesus did and what he said and, and try to emulate those things. Because God revealed himself directly in Jesus. But I want you to notice what happens later on. There's this little exchange. You know, they have this short conversation at the well over a bucket of water. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, now wait a minute. This is an odd phrase. Because you just talked about it, her, her, her five husbands. He just talked about buckets. He just talked about mountains and worshiping. And she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Huh? Whatever it was, this really impacted her. And she recognized that all of those things were wrapped up into who she was and the confusion that she had. And here it was, I know that my life is a mess. I understand there's all of this strife. And yet when the Messiah comes, he's going to explain it. He says, that's me. And she goes, oh, let me go grab some other people. And she says, everything I ever did. No, because he was beginning to help explain things that were muddled in her mind. The things that that caused her deep anxiety, that caused her probably personal pain, and he began to unravel it for her in the kindness of a conversation between a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman. The highest of heights, and frankly, in society, the lowest of lows. And he cared enough to say, let me reveal myself to you. And the disciples show up. <laughs> At one point they say, what are you doing? Which is really funny. But she goes and she grabs more people and they make their way to him. Let's, let's look at the result. Verse 35. 
Jesus says to his disciples, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? Apparently this was a phrase that they used. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Oh, that's beautiful. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. In other words, Jesus says, I've worked for that. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And I think this is an important thing for all of us to understand. Because I, I think especially when we talk in, in the church about things like evangelism, we think that it's all up to us to help somebody say yes to Jesus. But I don't think that's true at all. I think every person has some part to play. Some of them are much more active, some of much more kind of in support roles. Remember, it was, it was Paul who said, Apollos, water, uh, Apollos planted, uh, Paul watered, but God makes it grow. And so as a church, you may be a plant, you know, planting church. That's kind of us, right? You might be a watering church. You might be a harvesting church. You may have all three of those elements in because God has brought this together. I do not believe that we are all here together on a Sunday morning out of coincidence. I don't believe that. And I believe that every person has a certain gift and a certain passion. To borrow Rebecca's word, I think it's right that there's a certain thing that God puts in each one of us in order to serve kingdom sorts of purposes. But everybody has a part to play. And you know, some people are like, oh man, if I had to lead somebody to Christ, I don't know if I could do it. Well, okay, fair enough. I understand that. But maybe that's not what God's calling you to do. Maybe he's just calling you to be kind. Could we start there? Maybe he's just calling you to be friendly. Let's start there. Jesus simply asked for a drink. It's a beautiful thing. We all have this role to play, and one of the things that we have to do is kind of ask ourselves, what role do we have? Because I want you to see what happens next. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. So here's a little tip, I think. There's a little tip in here. If you want to see results, spiritual results, let Jesus do the talking. No, really. Let Jesus do the talking. Because ultimately, it's not the things that we say, but the fact of what God does through us. And very often, God has to do something in us before he does something through us. That's the hard part, by the way. But he's got to do something in us. And really, that's what happened with this woman at the well. He began to work in her heart and then began to work through her when she brought other people to him. Do you see that? It's a very simple type of pattern. But he worked inside. And so we, we become Jesus' followers from the inside out. I think, for me, what I have to remind myself of over and over again is that we are joining God in his mission. He's already at work. It's not the work that I'm doing, but it's work that he's doing that I get to be a part of. Does this make sense? This is a fundamental paradigm shift, I think. 
And those of us who grew up as, as Wesleyans in our theology, we understand this thing called provenient grace that says that God's Spirit is always working on everybody everywhere all the time. And usually when we notice that, it's often God's invitation for us to join Him in that. That's what we believe. We believe that His Spirit is moving and it's active and He's, he's attempting to try to draw people to Himself. And, and if we see that happening, we, we have the the opportunity and the privilege to join him in that work, whatever that is. And I, I keep thinking to myself, if I really want Jesus to do the talking, I mean, I mean, legit, if I want Jesus to do the talking, how do I do that? How do I become that conduit? Or how do I be that vessel. I don't, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but how do I allow Jesus to, to, how do I let God reveal himself directly to me through Jesus or to someone else that I know? How do I do that? That's a profound question because that's something I want to be a part of. I want to see that actually happen. Well, I think that ultimately it's about chasing the presence of God. I, I really think that it's about chasing the presence of God. And, and I get changed from the inside out, and then God works through that. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't have all this worked out. I'm still learning too. But as I look back on my own life, I see that pattern occurring. That when I chase God and I am in his presence and I am changed because of it, then I am more willing and able and apt to, to be that conduit for other people. And so if you're going to talk to someone else about whatever the issue is, then really that presence, um, here's some, some practical things. First of all, you, before you ever have a conversation with someone, you need to be prayed up about that. That's an old Wesleyan phrase, being prayed up. You know, some of you are nodding your head because you've heard this before. But it's that moment where you say, God, I know that this is something that I need to do or that you're calling me to do or this is something that, and I need to pray up for that. I need to be ready. And secondly, if you're ever going to talk to somebody, especially if you're going to confront them about sin in their life, that had better be Holy Spirit prompted. Because the bottom line here is, it's none of my business who goes to heaven or hell. My job is to offer heaven. That's it. And to offer and offer and offer and offer and continually to offer that. My job isn't to, to judge them because, oh, Lord knows, I've got plenty of problems in my own life too. But the point that we're trying to get at with this is that this is something the Holy Spirit is doing. It is his job to actually change them. David can change nobody. Ask my wife and kids. <laughs> I can't change people, and neither can you. We can merely be that conduit for God, and you better be prayed up, and it better be Holy Spirit prompted. Otherwise, that's going nowhere. And some of you know this because you've experienced that. But the way to get to that point where you can do that is to be in the presence of God, to allow God to reveal himself directly to you through Jesus. Is this making sense, how this fits together? Here's the problem we have. It's really slow. We don't like slow. We like fast. Hence, 
Instapot. Right? We, we like things that go fast, but very often when God moves, he's moving slow, slowly, but he's moving powerfully. And I would rather see God move powerfully than to try to s- jump ahead of him somehow and miss everything that he wants to do. And I'm going to tell you right now, I am not the most patient person in the world. This is part of my discipleship too. So chasing the presence of God, you, you have to learn how to hear his voice. And that takes uh, time and, and, and attention. And I recommend a journal, to be honest. I think that's one of the best ways to do it. Notice this in John chapter 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. You have to actually learn what his voice sounds like so that you can follow him. And I think that's, those are the moments when God reveals himself to us. And, and the other beautiful thing is, is then we can detect how he is speaking to other people, which is really cool. When you see God moving in someone else's life and you go, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, that right there, that might be God. And they kind of get this look on their face. And this has happened to me a couple of times. It's a lot of fun. I love that moment when the light goes on. Like, whoa, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. This might be a divine thing. Yes. And then they realize, oh, wait a minute. That God up there who's distant is actually interested in what's happening here. Yes. And by the way, there's this person called Jesus. That's how it works for me. I don't know if it works that way for you. That's okay. Hmm. Sometimes when God reveals himself to us, it is through the Bible. Um, But please understand that when God reveals himself to you directly through a thought or impression of some type, it will not contradict his Bible. We have to keep that in mind. Um, Sometimes he does through thoughts and impressions. Um, But I think he he reveals himself most often when we're just playing around him. Let's, let's increase the probability of him speaking to us directly by simply being in his presence and chasing after him. Is this making sense? And by the way, too, I think this is an important thing. That as, especially as we're talking to others and especially as we're trying to interact with God, my general sense is, is that when God is revealing himself, there's not judgment there, there's not condemnation there, but there might be conviction. And for me, that conviction almost always looks like this. Oh, David, I have such a better option for you. There's not this, there's this. And if that's the case, then my best approach to another person is not this, it's this. Let me introduce you. Does this make sense? I think this is really an important thing because God reveals himself directly, not only to us, but he can through other people, and he can do it through the work that we do as long as we are chasing after the presence and putting ourselves in a position to hear from him and to be used by him. And that's my, my encouragement for all of us today. You know, like always, um, uh, usually in the back afterwards, and um, we make that available pretty much every single week if you, if you want some prayer to it. And, and I kind of wonder, I mean, I don't, I don't know where you're at. Um, you know, this all might be, might be too early in the year for you, <laughs> whatever. Um, but maybe there's this thing where you're going, you know what, this chasing after God's presence really, 
seems like it's important, and I'm not sure how to do that. Hey, I'd love to pray with you about that one. Um, no judgment on that one. I'm still learning how to do it, too. Or maybe there's a particular issue that's come up or whatever. Look, the prayer is for you, and we're just happy to be able to, to connect you with the Father, and sometimes you just need a little outside help. There's, there's no shame in that. Um, I have people like that in my life, and uh, I just find it real helpful to have someone else pray for me in my circumstances. That's available every, we try to make it available every Sunday, but today, you know, maybe you're thinking about all this stuff and you're going, huh. I need a Homer bucket. <laughs> I want to draw from that living water. Well, let's pray about that.